Good morning. I'm James Hellman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Tuesday, January 7th. In today's news, John Bolton says he's willing to testify during President Trump's impeachment trial. Harvey Weinstein gets indicted in Los Angeles as his trial begins in New York. And alarming new figures show the toll of the drug war in Mexico. But first, the big idea. The burial of Iranian Quds Force commander, Major General Qassam Soleimani, was postponed today after a deadly stampede killed at least 32 people. Soleimani was killed in a U.S. drone strike last week in Baghdad. For its part, the Pentagon rushed last night to play down reports that U.S. troops in Iraq are being repositioned in preparation for a possible withdrawal one day after Iraqi lawmakers passed a non-binding resolution calling for all foreign troops to leave the country. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, said a letter indicating a withdrawal was mistakenly released to Iraqi officials by the U.S. military command in Baghdad. He said the letter saying troops were leaving was an unsigned planning draft discussing new deployments and should not have been released. A policy afterthought for the past three years while it served as a hub for military efforts against the Islamic State and a place from which to keep a close eye on Iran, Iraq has suddenly become a big problem for the United States. After bringing the Islamic State to heel and claiming to be well on his way to stopping the endless wars in the Middle East, Trump now finds himself in the middle of an entirely new crisis on the same battlefield that bedeviled his two immediate predecessors. There's widespread agreement among U.S. lawmakers in both parties and close allies in Europe that Soleimani was responsible for years of terrorist activities that killed hundreds of Americans. No one argues that. But many worry that the administration has no strategy to deal with the likely escalation of the U.S.-Iranian conflict that will follow. This concern is most acute in Iraq, where the two powers have long vied for influence. Already, The United States has suspended counter-Islamic state operations in Iraq and Syria, while the 5,000 U.S. troops in Iraq turn their attention to force protection in expectation of Iranian retaliation. NATO and U.S. training of Iraqi troops has also been suspended, and the U.S. government has told American civilians in Iraq to leave the country. Current and former officials say a prolonged pause in counterterrorism operations, let alone a U.S. departure, would hurt American security interests in the region. U.S. officials say it would be difficult, if not impossible, to continue the mission targeting the Islamic State in Syria, where there are still 1,000 U.S. troops without a presence in Iraq. Highlighting how much worse the situation could still deteriorate, senior administration officials are drafting actual sanctions against Iraq after Trump publicly threatened the country with debilitating economic penalties if it expels U.S. troops. The Treasury Department and White House are taking a leading role in implementing the possible sanctions. Such a step would represent a highly unusual move against a foreign ally that the U.S. has spent almost two decades and hundreds of billions of dollars propping up. Analysts, including many inside the U.S. government and the intelligence community, worry that Russia and Vladimir Putin stand to benefit from all of this. If the United States withdraws from Iraq as backlash over the killing widens, Russia is well positioned to strengthen its foothold in the country much as it did in Syria after Trump ordered a troop pullout there last fall, a step that he later partly reversed. German Chancellor Angela Merkel will meet with Putin in Moscow on Saturday at his invitation to discuss the future of the region and how to handle the crisis. 
A hasty U.S. departure would give Iran what it has sought for years by creating a void for Russia to exploit. Although it's more likely to do so through diplomatic overtures, trade deals, and arms sales than by deploying troops into the country. In Syria, when President Bashar al-Assad asked Putin to intervene on his behalf a few years ago as ISIS and anti-government rebels threatened his power, the man who argued his case and convinced the Kremlin that the war was still winnable was Soleimani. The slain commander traveled to Moscow in July 2015. He unfurled a map of Syria on the table and explained what could be done to prevent Assad's regime from following. The following April, he met again with Putin in Moscow to discuss deliveries of Russian missile systems to Syria. According to media reports from 2015 to 2017, he traveled numerous times to Moscow in breach of a U.N. travel ban. Soleimani's mission paid off handsomely for Russia, saving its strategic naval base in Tartus on Syria's Mediterranean coast. Russia also expanded its military foothold on Europe's doorstep, gaining use of a nearby airbase and establishing what some in NATO see as an air defense zone in the region. Meanwhile, back here in Washington, Trump himself has been confiding to top advisors that he sees a political upside in taking a hardline approach to Iran. Trump believes that he has an opportunity to expand his support among voters as a wartime commander-in-chief, and he's trying to cast his Democratic critics as soft on terrorism. This is according to two White House officials and several senior Republicans. These people say that he sees his party as more united behind him than ever before, even as his impeachment trial looms in the Senate, with some Republicans now arguing it would be irresponsible and dangerous to remove a president amid a national security crisis. Trump struck a harshly partisan tone on Monday afternoon that foreshadowed the political battles to come. He called in to Rush Limbaugh's nationally syndicated radio show and falsely accused Democrats of, quote, openly supporting Iran. Speaking of politics, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, whose role I highlighted in yesterday's episode, told Mitch McConnell during a meeting on Capitol Hill definitively that he will not run for that open Senate seat in Kansas this year. Aides said that Trump told Pompeo he wanted him to stay on as Secretary of State, especially amid the Iran crisis. And attempts on Capitol Hill to limit Trump from acting militarily against Tehran are shaping up to be largely partisan votes. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi plans to have the House vote later this week, potentially tomorrow, to invoke its war powers and order Trump to remove U.S. troops from hostilities against Iran. While Democrats in the Senate are preparing to force a vote as early as next week on a measure from Democratic Senator Tim Kaine that would do the same thing. But Democrats seem unlikely to win the support of several key Republican figures who have previously backed efforts to check Trump's power as commander in chief, but now vocally dis defend his decision to kill Soleimani. With an election in just 10 months, they've decided to rally around the president. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, John Bolton scrambled Senate Republicans' impeachment strategy yesterday by declaring his willingness to testify, upping the pressure on Mitch McConnell and his party to summon the former National Security Advisor as a witness during Trump's trial. Bolton rebuffed House Democratic investigators' entreaties to testify about his concerns about Trump's demands that Ukraine investigate his political rivals as the administration delayed military aid. So Bolton's surprise announcement that he's willing to talk to the Republicans in the Senate complicated the political calculus for the majority leader's no-witness strategy and appeared to increase the likelihood of at least some additional testimony that could 
prove embarrassing for the president. At least one Senate Republican, Mitt Romney, agreed Monday that it was imperative Bolton testify, while Democrats insisted that Republicans' refusal to allow him to tell his story would be tantamount to a cover-up. Bolton has firsthand knowledge of internal White House deliberations, and according to sworn testimony during the House probe, he reacted angrily to Trump's pressure on Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden. He called it a drug deal. Two moderate Senate Republicans, Susan Collins from Maine and Lisa Murkowski from Alaska, have said they're open to hearing from other witnesses. Still, those same Republican senators signal that they're willing to start the trial without any deal for Bolton's testimony. That keeps McConnell in firm control of the process for now, as he works to delay any decision on additional witnesses until House Democrats present their case and the president's defense team responds. The major question for McConnell is whether he can hold his members in line. A subpoena requires a simple majority of 51 votes, and Democrats would need just four Republicans to break ranks to ensure a fairer trial. In recent months, Bolton has told friends that he was deeply troubled by his time in the White House and what he saw as the president's erratic and unethical behavior. Still, other Bolton associates privately say that he wants a future in Republican politics, and so he doesn't want to be seen as a turncoat. Number two, disgraced Hollywood mogul Harvey Weinstein was charged with multiple sex crimes yesterday in Los Angeles as his trial for other sex crimes began in New York. Weinstein, who's 67 but is visibly aged since his May 2018 arrest, was in court with his five attorneys for a final conference before jury selection begins in his trial on rape and sexual assault allegations involving three women. He faces the possibility of life in prison in the New York case and has pleaded not guilty. The charges filed in Los Angeles shouldn't affect plans to proceed with jury pre-screening at New York Supreme Court in Manhattan, scheduled for later today. A spokeswoman for the L.A. County District Attorney's Office said Weinstein is not expected to appear there until his trial in New York concludes. Weinstein remains under investigation by authorities in both Dublin and London. The charges in L.A. involve alleged encounters with two women a day or two apart in February 2013. In all, Eight women have come forward in L.A. to report crimes involving Weinstein. In three of those cases, the statute of limitations had expired, so prosecutors decided not to file charges. The other three remain under investigation. Prosecutors in Los Angeles are recommending a $5 million bail in that case, and they say Weinstein faces up to 28 years in prison. Number three. Authorities in Mexico revealed yesterday that more than 61,000 people have disappeared in that country amid the drug war, sharply raising their estimate of those who have vanished in more than a decade now of extreme violence by and among organized crime groups. The government of President Andres Manuel López Obrador released these new figures after an exhaustive analysis of data from state-level prosecutors. The previous official estimate released in 2018 put the number at 40,000. The Monday announcement highlights the toll of more than a decade of extraordinary violence across Mexico, and it shows no signs of abating. Last year, homicides topped 31,000, a new record. In some regions, organized crime groups openly battle with police and soldiers. The latest casualty, a 13-year-old American boy was killed in Mexico this weekend near the U.S. border while traveling with his family. Oscar Lopez was shot in both legs and died during an ambush. He and his parents were visiting relatives in the Monterey area for the holidays. They were in a van with Oklahoma license plates and beginning the drive home when it happened. Finally, let me close with some happier news. 
the world's oldest person, just broke her own record by turning 117. Kane Tanaka has been holding on to her title as the oldest living person for about two years now. The super centenarian was gussied up in a gold kimono with red trimmings as she was ushered into her birthday celebration at a nursing home in Japan. She clapped her way into her big day and stopped to kiss the hands of well-wishers before singing a birthday song. And that's The Daily 202 for Tuesday, January 7th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Hellman. If you want to get more news about the impeachment process, you can subscribe to a podcast feed from The Washington Post with all our updates in one place, including the latest from The Daily 202's Big Idea, Can He Do That?, and Post Reports. Find it at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts.